good God, I'm one of those pilots. I'm, I'm now one of these people. They're going to end up in one of these magazines. This is a really bad situation. I can't see anything around me. I have no artificial horizon. I know that there's terrain pretty close to me because I'm not that high. I've only got one option. I've got to go up. G'day and welcome everyone to episode two of On The Step with that Mallard guy. I'm your host, Dan Bolton. Would you believe it? I'm capable of making a second episode. If you're new to the show, welcome. On the step is the whip lines, your 206. It's the anchor for your float locker. It's all things float planes and flying boats. I'd like to start off by saying thanks to everyone who has already got on board and gave me such positive feedback on firstly creating this show, but secondly, for the first episode. I've already had suggestions for people Uh, to get on the show for future episodes and if you think you know someone you'd like to get on please get in contact with me via email on thatmallardguy at hotmail.com or on my Instagram at thatmallardguy also if you love the show and want to hear more stories from float plane and flying boat pilots around the world give me a 5 star review on the platform you're listening on right now on today's episode I speak with a good mate of mine Drew Daniel He has flown for over 20 years and over 15 of them have been on floats. He has a very cool journey to share with you all and has some great advice if you're thinking of getting into the float world. But first, it's the world's favourite seaplane segment. No longer will this company be hiding in the shadows of darkness because we are about to turn on the seaplane spotlight. Alrighty, crazy times. We've got the seaplane spotlight out right now. Thank you to, there's been a few operators who have put in their name. Uh, I'm only doing one this week and it's a good one. It's all the way over into Europe. It's a company known as Nordic Seaplanes. So they're going to go under the seaplane spotlight today. First of all, uh, what seaplanes do you operate? They have DHC 6-300 amphibian float planes, better known as the Twin Otter. How many seaplanes do you have? Two. What is your main type of operation? Scheduled between Aarhus and Copenhagen. Sorry, my Danish is rather average. How many pilots do you employ? Seven, and that makes sense. They're, they're a multi-crew operation over there, I believe. What are your minimum hour requirements for new pilots? For the FO, 200 plus SEP, single engine aeroplane. And for captains, 3,500, 1,000 on floats and 500 hours on type. Do you offer seaplane training such as float plane endorsements, etc.? No. And they said, have a great day. Thank you very much, Nordic Seaplanes, for getting on board the seaplane spotlight, shining the light on seaplane operators all around the world and if you'd like to get involved next week for the seaplane spotlight please uh, get in contact with me on the channels that i mentioned before at the start now folks before we get into the main interview on today's show this week on instagram i ran a little q a about anything float planes and flying boats so I'm going to get to some of the other questions later on in future episodes, but I picked out a couple uh, to look at for today's Q&A. So the first question comes from jet underscore H1. 
T. Uh, it's uh, how did you end up in the Mallard? Um, there's a backdoor jet. Um, I'm just kidding, mate. Uh, so basically, my career getting to the Mallard, uh, I started off flying a 206 float plane, moved up to another company that had beavers and caravans. I did uh, some IFR flying, um, ended up being over in Vietnam doing IFR float plane work, which was really fun. And that experience over those kind of 10 years led to me being qualified enough to move on to the Mallard when there was a job available, of course. Uh, Mallard jobs do not come up very often, that is for sure. So that's basically my progress through to getting on to the Mallard. Okay, the next question comes from Sarah Tamar and uh, her question is a great one. I get asked this a lot and I'm sure a lot of other float operators around the world get asked this as well. It's what's the max wave height you would be comfortable landing the mallard in choppy waters? Well, Sarah, uh, to give you the short answer, the um, aircraft flight manual states that we cannot land anything greater than two and a half feet of uh, wave height. But uh, any float pilot will tell you judging two and a half feet of wave height when you're doing 80, 90 knots, um, only 10, 20 feet off the water, it's not easy. So judging wave height is something that I believe comes with time. And that's why a lot of operators, such as uh, the mallards that I operate on, they require pilots who have got some good, solid seaplane experience behind them so that they can make these decisions on whether it's safe or not to land uh, when you can't get the ruler out to measure two and a half feet. So that's the long answer. Um, your experience and your knowledge of what you can land basically by looking at what you see out the window comes over time. And um, it's something that yeah, you can't teach someone overnight, but uh, you can teach them over a lot of time, especially in a multi-crew cockpit like the Mallard. Um, but yeah, great question. Uh, thank you, Sarah, for that one. And the last question I have tonight is from Lions underscore Main. And uh, from the look at his profile picture, there is not much of a main there, mate. So keep working on that main, please. Uh, his question is, I have a seaplane rating, but only six hours pilot and command seaplane. But I want to get hired. How? Lions underscore Main. That is a great question. It is a question that I hear so many people say. My advice for you and the advice that I'm sure a lot of my future guests will be is get around those operators, um, hang out as much as you can with other float pilots, um, be a pest, get out there, wash planes, have beers with the other pilots that are working at float plane companies and just get in their face and when the time comes, they need another pilot, well, lines underscore mains, your face will be the thing that they are thinking about uh, when they look to hire another pilot. It might not be because you've got a beautiful long mane. It will be because you have been hanging around like a pest and they will give you the job, okay? So line underscore mains, get out there, show your face and get that first float plane job. We're all rooting for you, okay? And grow some hair, please. Okay, it's now time, folks. The moment you've all been waiting for. Let's lift up those water rudders, pull the control column full aft, apply full power, and let's get going. On the step. Right engine is turning. 12% fuel. 
a lot. All right, uh, welcome Drew, Daniel to the show. How are you going, mate? I'm doing uh, very well. Thanks for having me. Very good, mate. Uh, very excited to have you on the show, Drew Star. You know, you and I, have, uh, we've been working together for probably about 10 years now, so you're, you're one of the guys that I've worked with longest in my career, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's been about that. It has been a while. So uh, I, I kind of feel like I know you inside out, uh, but uh, the stuff you did beforehand, I didn't really don't really know very well. So why don't we start off with, how did you get into aviation, and uh, was seaplane flying something on the radar initially, or did that come into later on in your career? Uh, well... I think the, the spark was there earlier on, mate. It was um, – I was probably about nine years old um, and that's where it all started. Generally playing football for Linden Park Primary School down in Adelaide there and uh, Dad noticed at first where, you know, I would have the ultimate um, football shot coming at me ready to catch it and, and kick a goal but I was too busy looking at the planes flying over and the ball would go <laughs> straight past me and, you know, I'd – you know, I wouldn't lose the game, but I certainly shouldn't have been there. So, Dad actually picked up on that and thought he's always looking in the at the aeroplane. So, yeah, wow. We had a friend of the family, Anthony Jansen, who was a pilot. He used to fly for Mobile, and Dad teed it up and said, "Let's take him flying." And so they did. We went up in a one seven two, and we went out the back blocks of Adelaide there in the training area. And Dad gave the nod because I was busy looking at the instruments and out the window. And um, Anthony looked back, and Dad gave the nod. So. He started throwing the aeroplane around quite a lot and just to see my reaction. And I think I had the reaction of something, can you just tilt it over a bit more? I can't see this farm down here. And that was enough for Daddy said, right, hey, let's go. So um, I certainly wasn't scared of flying. And so that's that's how it started. And he put me into the Air Training Corps, which one of the best moves I think you can do for someone of that age. So the Air Training Corps is known as the Air Force Cadets today so and that was where I got my first taste of of flying so um, at the age of 13 they put me into gliders and um, I soloed in a glider at the age of 13 and then went from there and then you have to solo in a glider before you're allowed to go on to powered flight you see so then they moved us to Edinburgh Air Force Base and uh, we started on 150s and 152s and a lot of the instructors and people that owned their own aeroplanes helped us out really good people and they came in and brought their aircraft for a very low rate so we learnt to fly um, at an air force base trying to do circuits with orions was quite interesting so uh, so passion for aviation really early on hey oh absolutely um seaplanes and float planes weren't weren't entering my mind at this age i was just happy to fly so um that was in a much later stage um that seaplanes came in after you know sort of midway through my career so what age were you when you actually got your commercial license and, and went out to tackle the world of aviation as a, as a commercial pilot? Well, it was, um, I remember it distinctly, it was near 2000 actually is when I, I first um, came to be a commercial pilot and I was strutting around the bedroom with two bars on my shoulders because <laughs> I've been having one bar for so long or being a private pilot, I was so proud of myself, but had no job, no job prospects or anything. I was just happy to have it and went away for uh, 2001 to visit my mother in America and, of course, 9-11 happened and that threw things in a bit of a spin. Eventually came back to Australia and that's when the first job started to uh, to loom 
And as as you well know, Dan, it's very hard to, to get your first break, especially back then in aviation. Um, it is incredibly hard. And when when you did your commercial license, were you trying to target the airlines as such? I was like any other pilot. Just had to try and find that first job. Um, I think all pilots have some sort of aspiration for maybe something bigger, not necessarily airlines, but you have to start somewhere and everybody just wants to get their foot in the door, whether it's, you know, just building hours or um, unfortunately a lot of pilots are in the same boat back then where oh, I'll work for free, I just want to build hours, which didn't do uh, much for the industry at the time when people were trying to earn a dollar doing flying around the four-seaters. So anyway, I just was happy to get my first job, which ended up being bird scaring uh, out of Wakery on an almond field. And I was actually working with my best mate, flying the Piper Archer uh, on the deck just above these almond trees, scaring anything from crows to Major Mitchells to Regent Parrots uh, because they do thousands of dollars of damage a day if you don't keep them off the, uh, the almond fields. So that was interesting. Must have been pretty crazy uh, getting your license to be up in the air and now you're flying at dot feet around these almond farms. Well, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you were you were trained to, you know, fly at minimum altitudes um, only in things like uh, low-level endorsements and things like that. Would you go lower, which is exactly what I had to go to Swan Hill to do a low-level endorsement. Um, I did all that. And then uh, basically we were told to uh, and taught to throw the aeroplane around at uh, – low level um, and that was quite an eye-opener actually because there was a lot of things as a as a young pilot that you don't think about is is the environment around you you might be able to fly the airplane and i remember distinctly one day we were pretty much almost had like a wheel either side of the either side of the row of trees adam was in the uh the right seat i was in the left and we were uh, chasing these crows out of the uh, the rows and it was working really well what we didn't see was a um, like a dust devil, whirlywind coming in off the right-hand side. And it picked us up and shook us around. And we both hit our heads and the headsets come off and we controlled the aeroplane and you know, just went and landed and had a break. But um, just didn't even think about those sort of things back then, how you know things can come to grief when you're that, that close to the ground. Did you ever think about um, becoming an ag pilot? No, not at all. The person I was flying with, was that's all they wanted to do. Uh, but not me. I'd, I'd never really aspired to be an egg pilot. I'd, you know, I enjoyed low-level flying, but um, mustering is something I was interested in more than in that, which is the next avenue I took. Yeah, right. Tell us a bit about that, the mustering job. Um, well, the the bird scaring um, sort of got me to the 300-hour mark. That was the magic number back then, 300 hours, uh, and then you were basically able to be insured, should we say, and... Um, I put in a, an application to S. Kibben & Co., which were a large pastoral company, and um, I was accepted because uh, I was born and raised on a farm from an early age. I had a bit of um, cattle experience and fencing and all that sort of stuff. So uh, on I went, and we uh, went up to Durham Downs, southwest Queensland. That was 2002, and uh, the uh, chief pilot then was basically saying, look, I'm, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to put you on the Super Cub. I hope you don't mind. And I was sort of taken aback by that. And I thought, you're kidding me? Like, wouldn't all pilots give their eye tooth to, to fly a Super Cub? This was amazing. What was the other plane that you were potentially going to go on? It was a Cessna 206, uh, which is like the company plane where they'd fly the bosses around to each station and things like that, or perhaps do a freight run. But all the mustering back 
then uh, on the stations was done in the, the Tail Dragger Super Cup. And uh, 150 horses, and one of them was actually 180 horsepower. And oh, wow. one of the most fantastic aeroplanes I've ever flown. It's, it's an aeroplane you put on rather than you get in. It's amazing. It's, it's like a seat with wings. I've only had one chance to fly a Cub. It was in New Zealand last year on floats. It wasn't as many horses as what you had. I think it was only uh, 90 odd and uh, dragging floats around with two people on board. It was it was very sluggish, especially coming from flying the Mallard. Oh, absolutely. And boy, those things teach you to fly, um, and especially at low level. Spent most of our time somewhere 50 feet and, and less trying to get cattle out of the lignum and that there's no point being at 500 feet because you, you just won't get them out. So what a crazy start to your aviation career going from scaring birds at uh, dot feet now out to mustering in a, in a cub. What were you thinking back at that age about where you wanted to take your career long term? Um, it was right about that time, sort of 2003 going into 2004, where I picked up a flying magazine and uh, there was a, an article in there written by the editor uh, who'd been to Airwaves on the Gold Coast which, and, and did a seaplane endorsement. And, you know, I'd always been fascinated with seaplanes about, you know, it's an aeroplane that flies normally, but it can land on water. That's, that's fascinating. So I read the article and in um, big, bold letters on the article was, once you go to floats, you'll never go back. And I thought, that's a pretty bold statement. I better sort of investigate this. And I did. I had some time off and I had to go over to the Gold Coast anyway. So I thought while I was there, I, I did a bit of a, a trial and instructional flight at Airwaves in the uh, Cessna 185 straight floats. And um, we taxied out and straight away, straight away, it, it I was hooked because um, there was just so much. It was a dynamically changing environment and um, there was so much going on. And then just the feel of being on the water at speed and in displacement was fantastic. So I knew that this is something I was going to pursue. And then sure enough, you know, six months later, I went back and um, did the full course. And I actually did it at Airwaves on the same 185 with Nick Beasel, who was uh, one of the pilots at um, Pass Bailey for All. Yeah, okay, right. Now, did that initially, getting that float endorsement, did that lead straight away to some work in the float industry in Australia? No, not for me. It was um, something that I'd, I'd done to to have that ticket to know, yep, I've done the right thing. It's something that I've always wanted to have. Maybe I'll pursue this further later down the track. I went off and, and put a few resumes out. Of course, you don't have any experience. All you've got is the basic skills of a, um, a float plane pilot, and it's, it's enough to you know keep you flying and keep you out of trouble, but you don't have any real experience. That's sort of what you gain and you improve on once you get your first job. But trying to get that first job was always it was hard enough to get a standard um, land-based job let alone a seaplane job but you put your feelers out there and you do the same and and you know sort of maybe got one or two responses in 12 months um, thanks but no thanks and then i i'd since gone off to fly on fraser island off the beaches there for a while until um there was a bit of a shortage in pilots and um that's when i first i got the call from uh, a mob down in tasmania and just going back a step there with uh, with your float plane rating, did you notice when pilots do those float ratings, they say that having tailwheel time and um, a lot of hand and feet time is really helpful for a float rating. Did anyone say anything like they could tell that you were a really good feet and hands pilot? Yeah, on the first flight, 
guaranteed. They could see straight away hand sort of coordination. If it's one thing a tail dragger will teach you is coordination very quickly. And like most things, if you don't respect it, it'll turn around and bite you in the butt pretty quick. So, yeah, I think um, any tail time, tail wheel time, will teach you to use the rudder and not be sloppy on the controls. So that was that was brought up in, in the first. I said, you definitely tell you've been uh, flying tail draggers. I've always loved to to get out there and try and do my tail wheel endorsement just for that reason because I'm in the other way around, you know, doing all this float flying but never going to the tail wheel side. So I'd love to get out there one day and have a go at the tail wheel just to see how quickly I could pick that up, you know, with that float experience. I think that works both ways too. I mean, you, with the experience in the floats that you have, you, you can bring something from that into the tail wheel. I think that works both ways a little. Yeah, in the end, it's just it's all about uh, hand and feet skills really, isn't it? Yeah, um, so you just talked about before about getting that first float job. Uh, whereabouts was that and, and what was the flying that you were doing there? Um, it was down in Tasmania in a southwest uh, town called Strawn and um, right out there in the rugged wilderness. It was actually called Wilderness Air and they had three 185s and a uh, Cessna caravan on amphibious. And uh, I was obviously not turbine endorsed at that time and so yeah basically went down there with the bare minimum and um i was put on to the the 185 and, and shown the ropes and um wow that's when you've you've got to have everything come together fairly quickly because down there in the rugged southwest tasmania not only do you have to fly the airplane and fly it properly you've got the weather and everything else to contend with plus the terrain and um basically the first day's flight was out of strawn and into the Gordon River. And basically you have to fly over several ravines, then descend down into one of them, enter a 800-foot ravine one way and land on the water before you get to a certain corner. And you have to be on the water because you'll never make the turn. Yeah, wow. So I'm like, wow, okay, that's a that's a serious introduction to... Yeah, welcome to float planes. Yeah, and it was great. It was it was fantastic. And that was the first day there and, and things continued on. And um, some of the, the best flying ever had down there. You spoke about the weather. What time of the year did you actually go down to Tasmania when you started flying? Because obviously in Tasmania, you can have some pretty bad winters down there. Yeah, absolutely. We were down there in the summer, of course. You wouldn't want to be flying down in that area in the winter. So the company didn't operate at all in the winter? No, we, we were. Uh, the company actually had an effort down there in summer called Wilderness Air. And then during um, the winter or the dry season up in the Northern Territory, they would do the Horizontal Falls. It was the same company. So okay. Horizontal Falls and Broome for the dry season or winter. And then during summer or the wet season, we go back down. So we kept swapping from, from one to the other. So we would only be down there during summer. But there are certain you know weeks of, of summer that the, the weather comes in. And um, I distinctly remember flying through uh, after takeoff and you know you're on on the step and you have to turn corners very sharply while you're on the step and you have to be very mindful not to get airborne because if you get airborne you'll never make the turn but you can make that turn whilst on the step on the water and i got airborne went through this ravine and there was just this wall of water in front of me this massive shower and i I can't go through that i won't see what i'm doing so i just had the luxury of being a uh, seaplane so i just put it down onto the water brought it to a stop, taxied through the, the rain shower <laughs> out the other side and took off again. So we have those little things at your, at your disposal. You can do anything to, you know, keep yourself safe. 
it's funny you say that actually it brings back a memory of a story i have about flying in geelong on the cessna 206 we had a little area we'd go down to do some river landings and uh, when you talked about staying on the step to be able to complete something it reminded me of we'd have to be on the step on this river to then uh, go under a set of big power lines not just your normal street power lines but those big tower power lines yeah yep they were running directly across the river so you'd have to land before them obviously and then keep it on the step under the power lines before you could then take off again so sometimes in float planes you've got to be versatile like that don't you to be able to achieve the outcome you're after yeah absolutely it's it's very important and to know your limits especially when you're starting out and you know you're always going to push yourself to get better and be more confident but you have to know your limits um i just think i remember one day it was gusting up to 40 knots and i'd taken off in one of the 185s and, and i've gone out there and boy did we get tossed around over the top of those uh, ridges and over the um, ridge lines especially and then coming down into the 800 foot ravine you can imagine the gusting capability of that wind through there it was too much for me and i i wasn't confident that i could actually put the aircraft where i needed it to be i just didn't have the skill level so i aborted and and flew up and, and flew back and the boss sort of came out looked at me and scratched his head and like what, what are you doing back here and i explained to him i, I just said I'm, I'm sorry but i don't have the skill level in order to get in there today and he said it's no problem mate i'll go have a go he managed to get in, but he came back and patted me on the back and said, no, a good call, because he, he found it very tough. So, um, yeah, it's that's not the day to try and be a hero, that's for sure. Yeah, sounds like it. Now, you said that you were doing some flying down the summer in the south in Tasmania there, and then you were flying in the north of Australia, completely across a continent. Yes. Uh, how did you go getting the planes there? Because they were straight flight 185s, weren't they? Uh, they were, so... Initially, the 185s would all stay down in Strawn and the the operation up in Broome would only be the, the caravan amphibious. And that's how it was for a lot of time. But in the, the second year that I worked for that company, the idea was that uh, because the industry was booming, not only were we going to have the caravan on floats up there, we were obviously looking at bringing the 185s. And as you mentioned, the 185s are on PK floats. They're, they're not amphibious. They're just straight floats. Well, I'd been up through the middle of Australia quite a lot and I knew where all the water holes were, how big they were uh, and where the ones were good enough that we could perhaps land and refuel. So the idea was that the boss, myself and uh, a friend, Damien Heath, we were going to fly three of these 185 straight floats from Tasmania all the way up to Derby at the top of Australia and Western Australia. So how were we going to achieve that? Well, we just, we worked out on the map that Basically, sort of from Strawn up through Geelong, Lake Boga, in a Minka, Mount Isa, and then across, I think it was Lake Elliot, and then Kaukarung or somewhere like that, and then across into a place called Ski Lake. So we had to take all the fuel that we could carry in the floats with us so that, you know, we flew into across the Bass Strait into Geelong, I think your old seaport. Yeah, that would have been us, yeah. Uh, refueled there obviously but then took all the fuel that we could carry in the aircraft as well as extra um, in jerry's in the floats and we took off um, and that's how we would refuel yeah that was probably one of the most epic adventures i've ever had there was good and very bad um i think 
at the back of the flying magazines at the time, there was this little article on the very back page or very close to the back. It was in bold writing. I learned about aviation from that. It was about, you know, you read those stories about um, pilots that got themselves into trouble, how they got out of it or... Like the crash comic type thing. Yeah, sort of like that. Well, um, I, I thought that I was going to end up on one of those coming out of Geelong. Uh, the weather was not fantastic. Um, and it was a case of push-on-itis, so uh, a big, steep learning curve for me on this day where we all took off sort of in company but not formation, and we we, we went off and we were going west quite a bit before we could go north to get away from the hills and the weather. And um, what we were finding is that the, the weather was sort of closing in behind us and we kept whatever gaps we could keep in front of us, but then there was a layer of cloud below us and before too long, it happened very, very quickly, there was a layer of cloud above us and then sort of rain showers either side. So we were, for a bit of a, we were in a fishbowl, it was basically of weather. And unfortunately, this fishbowl wasn't following the aircraft. It was getting smaller and smaller. And the problem was I didn't have a working artificial horizon. So it was all visual, basically. You didn't need one. But um, on this day, I seriously wish I'd had one. And... Um, as we were flying, we had to keep going further west. I know Damien at the time had more experience um, IFR and things like that than me, and I thought, well, just in case I get in trouble, I'll follow him. <laughs> and anyway, um, before too long, I'd lost sight of him. He disappeared. And um, this is the the time where your heart's in your throat now because you're thinking, good God, I'm one of those pilots. I'm, I'm now one of these people. They're going to end up in one of these magazines. This is a really bad situation. I can't see anything around me. I have no artificial horizon. I know that there's terrain pretty close to me because I'm not that high. Um, I've only got one option. I've got to go up. And I'm thinking, how am I going to do that and keep my wings level? Because I have to go up through cloud, and I don't know how thick this cloud layer is. And, and you're not an instrumented pilot either, are you? No, was not. I knew the basics. You know, I knew how to sort of keep my – if I had a working AH, I would have been fine. So I had to look at the DG and things like that and um, try and do everything I can. And I found this very, very small slit. It almost looked like a, an abyss, if you will, amongst the clouds. And I thought it, it was a lot deeper than I thought. So I um, poured the power on and I got some airspeed up and basically reefed the aircraft straight up, nose up and brought it back to 60 knots and climbed as quick as I could through that cloud layer, through whatever small crack I could, and just managed to get on top of the cloud, coming down through 60 knots as I nosed over and just sort of followed the saddles in the cloud to get out of it, turned north, and um, I was out of it. But, um, yeah, it could have ended very badly. If I had not found the gap in the cloud um, that I did, it's possible... I could have come spiralling out of the, uh, the cloud there and ended up on the news. So it was a very lucky day. It's crazy. I'm sure, you know, a lot of private pilots and commercial pilots and even airline pilots these days um, have all got stories very similar to that that they could tell. But uh, putting that aside, it must have sounded like a pretty epic trip, like you said, doing that flight all the way from the south to the north. Oh, it was it was absolutely magic. The weather from then on was was wonderful. And as we went north, um, you know, you'd be f about 500 feet, getting close to your destination, flying along a fence line, tracking towards a large waterhole, and all the farmers are sort of doing their own thing. But you can see them lining up at the fence, looking and pointing. You know, you're in the middle of Australia. There's it's desert, and there's a float plane with no wheels going past, 
and you know must have been quite the sight three of them going past thinking where have they come from where are they landing they don't have any wheels but anyway we've you know found the water holes that we needed to and and that we had pre-arranged to have someone meet us there and take us to the nearest airport or place that we could get avgas and refuel and we did that uh, right through um, the middle of australia and across uh, the nt into the top of wa and ended up all the way into just out of derby on the way from derby to broome there's a couple of small lakes you'll cross over some little bridges there and one of them was called ski lake and um that's where we, after a couple of other stops and, and trying out some other water holes, we found that that one was going to be the best one as it had this n- nice long straight of water and a place to tie up the aircraft. And, and so we all landed in there and tied the aircraft up and thought that will be our base for the season, which was a bit of a logistical nightmare because we had to travel all the way back to Derby and in the morning or all the way back in the Troopy to get out there and get the aircraft ready to fly them from there out to uh, pick up people and then on to the horizontal falls. So, um, yeah, it was good until we eventually had a, um, it was about a 300-metre pontoon that we actually built. That's another story in itself, but we managed to put that out the front of Derby and uh, we operated off of that. But we still had to fly the aeroplanes in the morning from Ski Lake out to the front of Derby, put them onto this, uh, tie them to this pontoon and then we, we could do trips to the horizontal falls back and forth all day and then towards the end of last light we would fly them back to ski lake so it was it was quite the effort and many long hours to to uh, get the job done yeah i bet and talking about that effort um one of the reasons why a lot of effort was because of the tides up there isn't it derby's got one of the highest tide ranges in the world isn't it it's 11 meters 11 yeah, meters wow. of derby and um, you hear the stories but you don't really know until you actually experience it. And I tell you what, uh, you need to be Johnny on the spot, especially out there. Even a nice clear day, fairly calm water, and you're approaching to dock the seaplane to the pontoon. And you, you get to the dock and you have to shut down, get the aeroplane tied off to the dock. And then when it's all tied off and you're sitting there, you can hear this rushing of water and you realise that the aeroplane's actually doing 10 knots through the water without moving because the water's flowing that fast any faster than the damn thing would want to get up onto the step i reckon but it was um yeah very very interesting and, and we had all sorts of trouble keeping the uh, the pontoon wanted to move all the time because it wouldn't sit still the anchors wouldn't catch and oh the harbour master was yeah having a heart attack because this you know um, navigational nightmare was <laughs> drifting around out the front of uh, the derby jetty quite often yeah so, that's crazy uh, um, certainly had to be abreast of everything that was happening, especially when um, – well, I'll put it this way. we You think about 100 hourly on an aircraft. Right? We had straight float aircraft, and it dawned on us that how are we going to do the 100 hourly on these aircraft? And I spoke to the boss, and he was like, well, I'm not having anybody come down and, and do it at the water's edge because, you know, there's crocs and things around. So what we had to do – was, and this is why you have to be abreast of the tide, in the middle of the night, and of course I, I was pinned to do this, so we had to go down to the Derby Jetty at night with a torch and I was taken out to the aircraft which we had put on a mooring that afternoon. In the middle of the night, I had to get in, start the aircraft, taxi it towards the ramp with one light and we had to do this during neat tides. It's the only time that you'd be able to do this and sometimes... 
when you think neat tides, it's not always right. So I'm tracking towards this trailer to put the uh, the aircraft up onto the trailer so we can take it away. And uh, you had to be very quick and get it onto that trailer. And, and of course, now the tide's starting to run. So you're not actually facing the trailer with the floats. You have to offset it like crabbing in the water and you have to kick it straight and apply power at the right time to get it up onto the onto the trailer. And if you missed, you were going under the jetty. It was it was pretty awful, but we managed to do that. We tied the aircraft down and we actually drove the aeroplane on the trailer on the main road into Derby. Before we got to Derby, we would turn off go north along the salt flats and drive around in the middle of the night on the salt flats into the airport and then drop the uh, the trailer into the hangar. And that was the only way we did the 100 hourlies. Wow. And then we had to reverse that at the night and put it back in the water. Yeah, right. So, uh, yeah, so yeah, it was quite quite interesting. And, and it's amazing, um, as, as crazy as that was, the things that, you know, you, you do to get the job done. Oh, that's crazy. Now, you're talking about the tides there. Now, the tide is a big factor for why you were up there, wasn't it? It was the horizontal waterfalls. It's a it's a tidal area that creates these exactly what they are, horizontal waterfalls. Tell us a little bit about the flying there and then moving on to the caravan because I know you, you started your caravan flying out of there as well. Yeah, eventually it came time to move up to the caravan and um, do my part out of uh, Broome for the operation. Most of the, the 185 stuff happened out of Derby and out of Broome was the, the caravan operation. So you would fly over um, King Sound into the Buccaneer Archipelago, and then you would fly then into a place called Talbot Bay. At the time, there was a Paspali Pearl Farm there right next to the Horizontal Falls where the Mallard would come in and out uh, every now and then. And we would um, land the, uh, the caravan more often than not alongside a, a large area called uh, Slug Island, and land on the water there and pull up to a pontoon. And um, that was the only effort out there on the water at the time. There were some other things in progress, but that was the main one that we would pull up to and we would have a fast boat or a yacht that would have people staying on it, which would transfer people to and from the uh, horizontal falls. They would do the trip and uh, then we would fly them out to another place called Cape Levique and then onwards to Broome. But um, sometimes the water out there um, is... It's not perfect, and there was another area that we could fly into called Cyclone Creek, and that was um, a real eye-opener. It was a bit like flying into Ski Lake or into, you know, the Gordon River. So, you know, some of that earlier stuff was coming back to play in the skill set where we would come down into Cyclone Creek and uh, land down into a ravine and then taxi the aircraft around through um, these canyons, if you will, or a gorge and then come out the other side to be able to continue the tour. Sounds like some incredible flying, and I know that area from myself flying over there. It's it's beautiful scenery as well. Uh, how long were you in that area flying for that company? Um, I did three seasons there, which wasn't quite three years, but it was it was getting close to almost three years now um, working, and that was going back and forth, and we loved it. We loved the travelling, um, Kerry Lee. My wife was loving the, the ability to travel across Australia and never know where you're going to end up next. But, yeah, we did three seasons of that of um, down in Tasmania, then up in Broome and backwards and forth. So it was it was a really good mixture of flying. Yeah, definitely. It sounds like it. So what was the next step after taking that uh, leap up into the caravan at the Horizontal Falls there? Was there another job after that that came along? Uh, there was. Um, that was when Airwit Sunday came to fruition so we were actually 
driving on our way back from Tasmania, uh, doing the drive back up through uh, Kununurra onwards to Broome to start the season, and we were in a, a caravan park for the night in Kununurra, and um, I got a, a phone call uh, from a gentleman on the east coast, and said that they were looking for a pilot, and I said, well, I'll, I'll give them a call back, and we got to talking, and um, the caravan experience that I have suited the the role that they had there for um, Airwit Sundays at the time, which was actually a grand caravan uh, doing some some wheeled work with a lead into the float stuff later on. So uh, it was a bit of a dream job for me over there. I'd heard lots about it and, you know, I thought that that would be, make a, a fantastic next step. And um, so we jumped at it and uh, never made it to Broome. <laughs> we turned around at Kununurra and we uh, said our goodbyes and, and cleared things up and, and moved east and started a, uh, the next adventure at Airwet Sundays. So was the Wood Sundays always on your radar from an early beginning? Yeah, it was. When you're in the float industry, uh, that's a word that used to come up a lot. Broome, obviously, as well, but generally the Whit Sunday Islands, you know, were, were the float planes. Um, that's where they tend to originate from, uh, especially the De Havilland Beaver. That was, you know, growing up. You know, we would anything to do with floats and that you'd be watching in Alaska and, and, and places like that. And there's always the beaver, the beaver or uh, an otter or something like that. And um, that, you know, radial sort of fascinated me at the time. So I thought, um, this is going to be uh, fantastic. And it was when I actually arrived, I thought I was going onto a caravan. But um, the boss said, look, or the chief pilot said, look, what we're going to do is we're going to put you onto the, the beaver first have you fly that, get used to the area, and then we'll put you back on the caravan. And I was like, I couldn't be happier. I'm like, you're going to actually put me in a beaver? I'll, I'll fly that till the cows come home, no problem. And um, so, yeah, that I think that was one of the draw cards to the area. Yeah, I remember when I first started there as well, like the beaver is your, your entry-level aircraft. It was so crazy to think that this radial machine that was built uh, in the late 40s, early 50s was the aeroplane you were starting off on. It was same for me. It was a dream come true getting that job in the Whitsundays. Yeah, absolutely. And with it came its own set of um, learning curves. I mean, as you know, you, you, you're sitting quite high in um, these aircraft and, and landing on narrow runways and things like that. And it was just a, a whole new thing to get used to, I guess, which you did. Like everything, you, you get used to it reasonably quick. But yeah, I loved it. It was um, one of the boxes that you can tick, you know, um, not just the radial, but just the, the beaver in general, saying that you've got time on it and you got pretty intimate with it. What were one of your favourite things about flying in the wet Sundays? Um, the backyard, obviously. It's the, the islands. Um, I don't know. There's, there's something adventurous and romantic about islands, isn't it? Whether it be something in like Bora Bora or Tahiti or, you know, some of these old programs you see seaplanes bashing around in. But we had it in our doorstep, you know, the Whit Sundays. And I'd never been there before, um, not even for a holiday. So um, Great Barrier Reef at your doorstep, uh, flying around tropical islands, or, or everything that goes with that area. And uh, that was a huge draw card as well, being able to land on white sandy beaches and, and frolic in the sun, in the water, and barefoot. It was, yeah, it was almost felt like flying by the seat of your pants stuff. It was, it was great. 
I remember a couple of stories actually that come to mind with uh, with you and I in them. First one was uh, when I was a, a budding young seaplane pilot down in Geelong. I made a few trips up to the Whitsundays to you know show my face and to meet a few of the guys because I really wanted that job at Air Whitsunday when, when one finally came up. It felt like you yeah, almost had to wait for someone to die to get a job at Air Whitsunday. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was a bit like that, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, and uh, I know even a year and a half wait for myself was not really that long compared to some other people that have waited but I came up and I came up just to show my face that was all I was really expecting and I was told that there was a flight going that had two spare seats so I I was allowed to jump on board for nothing I was like this is this is crazy and I sat up front of this Cessna caravan I didn't have any caravan experience at the time just a, a 200-300 hour Cessna 206 pilot and uh, it was next to you and, and you took me all the way around the Whitsundays on this amazing tour and I was just blown away by how different it was to the world I was living in down in Geelong. Yeah, exactly. Especially when you visit the area for the first time. It's not like, I've been here on holiday, now I'm working the area. For me, it was both at once. It was like, I'm having a holiday while I'm working. And that was one of the the big things at the end of the day, um, especially the long days. You know how long those days were, some of them that you know you go home and you're completely shagged and you, and you crack a beer and you and you're going that was a really good day what did i do today and you name the places that you go and that you were you know swimming at the great barrier reef driving a boat looking at coral flying a seaplane landing on beautiful white sandy beaches um, handing out champagne talking with people you were basically having a holiday with these people which were paying very good money to do the same thing except you just happened to be sitting at the business end flying the aeroplane and we got to do that every day and you know as you can attest to not every day was perfect and there were certainly challenges but for the most part it's um some of the most wonderful flying we've ever done i think it really opened up my eyes actually to tourism work in an airplane um you look at the airlines for example everything's from a to b and it's hop on get to your destination hop off even what i was doing down in geelong was just 15 minute half hour scenic flights but coming to the Whitsundays, you know, and, and talking about that trip I did with you again, uh, spending an hour on one of the best beaches in Australia drinking champagne and then going on another flight out to the Great Barrier Reef and swimming with sharks and turtles. It was just yeah. a really crazy experience. Yeah, and I think that was one of the, the better two. Not all companies would necessarily allow that to happen where the, you're the pilot and that's your job. You fly the plane and then when you land at your destination, someone takes over and then does the water side. We got to do it all. We were hands-on. So not only were we the pilots, we were the boat drivers and uh, the safety officers and the, the caterers. And we did absolutely everything. And we were there um, to, to see them at the start and we were there to wave them off at the end of the tour. And, you know, you made some friends and people – you may not remember everybody that was on your tour, but generally everybody on the tour remembered you. It was so much fun. Now, I want to talk about the other memory I had about you, and you're probably expecting this one to pop up. It was a, uh, a very early morning that you and I flew out to Hayman Island to pick up some special VIP guests. Um, I was in the Beaver, you were in the caravan, and it was, <laughs> yes. uh, it was to pick up uh, a Sports Illustrated model for a photo shoot at Whitehaven Beach very early in the morning. Uh, unfortunately, because you had the uh, the aeroplane that could carry a bit more load, I was the one who was very fortunate enough to take the, the young uh, lass out in the beaver. 
we got to the beach. It was an absolute beautiful day, wasn't it? It was uh, one of the perfect days at Whitehaven. We were quite far up to the north end as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was a lovely day. Yeah, and we were ready to set the anchors for a good kind of four or five hours while they just did whatever they needed to do for this photo shoot. Now, um, one of the things we probably didn't factor in because we've never been to the beach for that long during those, you know, that, that time. Um, yeah, and quite a different area, wasn't it? Yeah, and our trips were normally just an hour. So, uh, over four or five hours, um, things things changed a bit more, in, in, in particular the tide. And uh, we had that incident where... Uh, the the anchor on the caravan had, had dragged because the tide had risen so much. Yes. And uh, and you and I both watched it start to drift backwards. Luckily, there wasn't a huge wind, uh, but it was still drifting back towards the beaver and uh, we both sprinted down the beach and uh, I think I jumped in the water first and started swimming out, but we were so lucky that that plane did not drift into the beaver. It actually drifted past it out to its side. And I just started my caravan training at the time, and and I was able to start it up and bring it back. But that was, that was certainly a, a close call. That one wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I remember that. Um, and it was interesting just how things play out. Where sometimes, you know, it, it turns out well, and other times not so well. And we sort of dodged a bullet on that one. But you know, it's we're human. It's a learning curve, and I think aviation is all about that. Where uh, you will make mistakes and um, you just got to learn from them. And I still go back to the training that I had at Airwaves where um, I was taught that, you know, you'd like to think that, you know, pilots are sort of Johnny on the spot regardless of what they're flying. But he said, you're in a float plane now. You have to think differently. And I was sort of, oh, okay. Um, well, that sort of makes sense. But what, what do you mean? And, and sure enough, uh, on a couple of the flights, um, one in particular, we were just coming back um, for lunch and we'd done a bit of a stint and we we were landing. But, of course, this, you're landing near SeaWorld and D-Arm in, on the Gold Coast, so there's lots of traffic. And one of the things that he said is you've got to watch out for that boat. What's that in the water? Where's that wake going? Um, you know, where, where, what's the tide doing? Which way is the wind coming from? All these little things that can ruin your day if you get it wrong and sure enough when we were coming into land we were only about 30 feet off the water this fellow on his jet ski thought it'd be fantastic to come right up underneath us and ride his jet ski underneath our wing and the profanity coming out of nick at the time yeah i can't repeat right now but um yeah basically he powered on for a little bit longer and um basically the guy got the idea and he he turned away but Never in a million years would I expect somebody to ride their jet ski under a landing seaplane, um, thinking it would be, you know, make a good photo or, or what have you. It was downright dangerous. But, you know, these are the things. It's a, a very dynamically changing um, scenario. Exactly. And I have a story as well, actually. Uh, at Whitehaven Beach one day, I took off in the Beaver. It was in the winter season, so it was actually the whale season. And I was just kind of getting on the step, almost on the step at Whitehaven there and I noticed about, probably must have been about five, 600 metres ahead of me, uh, the spray of a whale directly on my takeoff path. So it's kind of not, not a breach but he's come out of the water there and just done his spray and uh, yep. And I, I had enough room to get airborne still but it's like, you know, even things like that, you've got to contend with, uh, you know, with whales and potentially in your takeoff area, it's yeah. The flow plane world is just so um, variable sometimes. 
Yeah, absolutely. We're we're sharing, you know, large bodies of water, uh, not only with other craft operated by humans, but animals and, and mammals and, and things like that. And let's face it, you hit a whale, it's not going to end very well, I don't think, for either either party. No. Now, mate, I remember when you were at Airwit there, it was it was almost a, a career job, wasn't it? You were you were almost there set for life. You loved the lifestyle on the Whitsundays, you loved the flying. Uh, what was the turning point for you to move on and uh, and move up to the IFR world and, and be where you are today? Um, I'd... I'd always been interested in IFR and, you know, from flight simulator or, um, you know, things that I had going on in the shed at the time. But like you say, I was I was set. I was very happy where I was and I, I just, you know, thought I had the dream job. You know, I was doing the things that I love and, and a good mixture of, of flying and boating and swimming and everything that went with there with Sunday. But... Um, IFR was was niggling at me for real, but back then uh, things are very expensive, and it was a case of you know having all the time in the world and no money, or the money and no time um, to do it. So there was a a bit of a turning point when I came into a little bit of money at the time, and I had some holidays and all the planets aligned, and um, I said, you know what, this this money is going to go towards an IFR rating because opportunities. Uh, may be coming up and it's probably worthwhile getting that under my belt now so that's what i did and i went off to to ballarat i think the same place you did yours with roger gration there yeah it was yeah um and knocked it off in two weeks and it was it was nothing brand new i, I knew all the basics through flight sim and stuff but uh, and and no way comparing them saying they're equal but just it helped out a lot and um it was really rewarding i think some of the most rewarding flying in in that regard I'd done it a long time. It, um, procedures, basically, just teaching you to, to and fly the numbers and stay on procedures, and um, it was it was a really good feeling coming out of that. Uh, so now I'm this this pilot working for Everett Sunday that now has a um, an IFR rating, and uh, still being happy at Everett Sunday. There's, you know, sometimes in a company you can see the writing on the wall, or um, you know, perhaps things things are changing, and that you you may need to look at moving on, or you know, there's there's something that's niggling at you to to try something new, and it's pretty rare as pilots that we kind of stay at the one place majority of our career, isn't it? Even in such a cool job like the Whit Sundays was, there's always something uh, bigger calling. Sometimes, isn't there? Sometimes, yeah. But um, you know, it, I didn't have blinkers on, but I was I was very happy, even though I thought, you know, I have an opportunity to move on, and I think it was one day. Uh, I was in the kitchen there at Airwit Sunday and you'd come in and we were having a coffee or a drink or something or other in between flights or towards the end of the day, I wasn't sure. And um, I remember you were mentioning it was about, you know, have you ever thought about flying for Paspaley on the Mallards? And I thought, yeah, I've thought about it. Like, you know, isn't that sort of the pinnacle of, a, you know, float flying in Australia? That sort of, that'd be your end game. But yeah, I'm, I'm very happy here. And um, I don't know whether I'd actually had my IFR at that time. I said, I don't have that. I'm not aspiring to do that. I just want to stay here and be in my little box and be happy. But um, it was that conversation that I had with you in that kitchen that that really sort of triggered, well, hang on a minute, you know, who's to say that I maybe I could, you know? I never wanted to be an airline pilot per se. I just loved the idea of flying an airliner and, and what that sort of entailed. But I never really 
was that keen to go out and do it and I just um, want to I just want to jump in there because you talked a little bit about flight simulator before and, and talking about airline pilots because there was uh, it wasn't just a, a PC computer in your garage was it at one stage there was something a little bit bigger with flight sim going on uh, yeah that's right and actually you had a go at that too didn't you I did, yeah. yeah so I used to love flight sim I've been playing flight simulator since 1985 the first version that came out and um, four pixels yeah pretty much and you know it was pretty good and you know it, I could fly anywhere I wanted and it was it was a lot of fun but however you know it became an obsession and like I said airline flying was an interest but I didn't have an interest in actually really pursuing going to fly for one of the big carriers or something like that but I love the idea of multi-crew and flying a, an airliner so what better way than actually going off to the airliner than than building your own? So I built full scale 767 flight simulator in my garage. Um, I got thumbs up from the wife. <laughs> so she, she didn't leave me, and it took two years. And um, I had parts flown in from Canada and United States. And, um, and what kind of what kind of parts are they? Because these are serious parts, weren't they? Well, they were. There was like the the. The replica yoke was um, for the 767. Um, the uh, flight management system was uh, came from America, and there was radios and transponders and things like that, which look identical to the real counterpart, um, except that they're manufactured for the simulation world. So, um, but basically, yeah, it was a 90% complete level D simulator without hydraulics. It was it was a fixed base, and it had a wrap around 180 degree visuals uh which were projection um three projectors and it really um well you flew it you remember that it really gave you the sensation i remember actually doing a flight with people falling over standing up behind me because um they they didn't know which way was up there for a while so it was so incredible i think the funniest thing about it is that it was a rental property i don't know how you got through those rental inspections with a (laughs) a simulator in the in the garage they used to love it because they used to want to sit in it and play with it and yeah but that was the that was the the drama i i was that keen to do it i i was willing to do it in a rental property i think that says a lot so i did it and at the cost of tune of about twelve thousand dollars um built it all by hand um and yeah, it was it was a lot of fun for a while, and but like it, all good things come to an end, and I had to dismantle it and move it on, and, and sort of sold it to Europe. They sort of someone bought it and um, some other pieces and what have you, and I got most of my money back. But um, yeah, you really need to own your own property to yeah. have something of that scale. But it was a lot of fun, and I, it was a good learning curve, and it sort of sparked the IFR. Um, in me a little bit more, which was then led to the conversation we were having in the kitchen that every Sunday where um, you, you said, you know, yeah, have you ever thought about that? It's something you should really think about. I think you'd be good at that. And I'm thinking, you know, this what's stopping me? Why why not have a go? And that's when I went out and did the IFR. And, and lo and behold, hmm, you know, um, a few uh, job interviews were, were lined up. So um, it was a, a, a very big turn in my career and life at that point yeah well it's incredible and we'll talk about the mallard in a moment but the the job is basically almost uh airline operations but with the water work thrown in so it kind of made sense to encourage you at the time to tick both boxes in in the one airplane oh absolutely um and uh, i knew of them and i knew roughly what they flew and and 
and some of the flying that they were doing. But that was that was a bit. And then I had to start doing some research. You know, um, a friend of ours, a mutual friend, was flying for them at the time, and um, I got some information from him and, and learned a bit more about it and um, heard that they were potentially looking for pilots. And so that's when I put my hand up, put my best foot forward, and um, straight after the IFR rating um i went up to to see them and say hello and um just you know just make my presence known and, and then went back to work at airwit sunday for a while kind of like what i was doing to come up to airwit and meet people well that's what you do you know you, you put your best foot forward as mentioned and, and introduce yourself and say this is this is me this is what i'm about and i think it's nice to put a face to a name yeah airwit sunday was definitely a, almost a breeding ground for pilots going up to the Mallard, weren't they? Like, Yeah, definitely. It was a bit of a nursery, I think, for that sort of thing. It was um, most pilots that I know of um, had something to do with Airwit Sunday at some point. Not only did the pilots come from there, the aeroplanes came from there as well. So. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So how did you find the experience of uh, of moving away from your comfort zone again after a, what was about eight years in the Whitsundays? Um, yes, it was about that. Um so eight years in the Whit Sundays, and then moving on and doing an interview for your first ever IFR job. Yeah, um, and everything that goes with the job, you don't think of at the time. Uh, never in a million years would I think that I own a house now in Darwin, of all places. Uh, it's not that I never thought I'd ever go to Darwin. It's just I I never had foreseen myself living and working there as you know and and having a family here. So, um, yeah, the interview process, like most, it was like going for the big wigs, I guess. Um, it was a um, very good interview. I, I thoroughly enjoyed the interview, but, you know, a little bit intimidating because, you know, it's the next step up and, you know, you, you want the job like everybody else, so you put your best foot forward. I keep saying that because I think it's true. I think you just you've, – you've got to be true to yourself and true to them. Um, I think you can be um, – easily led down the garden path you can always go in and try and say things you think they want to hear but i think you just got to be true to yourself and answer as, as honestly as you can a lot of ifr jobs generally have uh, some sort of flying component a lot of um, them have simulators that they can put you in to test out your flying skills paspaley doesn't have that because we don't have that um, ability to jump in a simulator or even just go out and take you know a mallard out burning around for fun so was it just for you was it all just uh, an oral interview as well yes yeah it was um and very quickly i could see that they were interested in the water work and the history that i had with that what sort of experience i had um was far uh, more important to them than the actual ifr flying and we realized that they can polish you up and get you a better IFR pilot fairly quickly, but it's much harder to um, train somebody in the water side of things. Um, having that experience and bringing that experience with you is, I think, is perhaps a little bit uh, more beneficial having the water side and less IFR than having the best IFR pilot around with no water experience at all. Um, can, can be a bit harder so yeah it was all oral. there was no flying component it was here let's go have a look at the aeroplane um, and this is our operation uh, they're very very good at saying this is what we're about it's not only about tell us about you 
they were very good at saying, you know, this is about the company, this is what we're going to offer you, and this is our operation. They were very keen and very proud of, of what they'd achieved and what they were doing. And, um, yeah, so it worked both ways on the interview. It was great. So you obviously got the job. Talk to us about what it was like to move up to Darwin and start flying an iconic aircraft like the Mallard. Best move I've ever made, I think. In fact, I know. You know just a little bit intimidating you're not moving uh, from house to house, uh, like a rental property to a rental. You're moving state and you're picking up your life and you're moving your entire life and family uh, to the unknown in good spirits and, you know, you have high hopes, but it's still the unknown. So having done that initially, we were like, Darwin's a different climate. It, it's either hot or it's hot and wet and that's it. There's no real sort of in between. And so you have to – things are a little bit different, you know price-wise and finding houses and, and making the move. That, that can be said for anywhere in Australia. But once you got that out of the way, um, that was sort of overshadowed by the training and, and the start. You were, you know, I, I moved up by myself first and got established here with a, with somewhere to stay and um, got into to work and training fairly quickly. And then um, my wife and daughter followed, you know, a month later. And how about the training on the, on the Mallard? How did you find the the hull versus a float plane? Um, I thought there was actually quite quite the difference handling-wise. Um, most, of, In fact, all of my career up to that point, um, I basically had two points of contact in the water at all times. And as you well know, um, you can't afford to be sloppy uh, on the water. However, you do have some sort of error of margin or margin of error, should I say, um, with two pontoons, if you will, or, or a float plane, seaplane that has pontoons on it. As opposed to a flying hull, you've only got one point of contact main, which is the hull. So you can't afford to um, allow the wing to drop and things like that. So you, you really have to be diligent and Johnny on the spot with your control uh, of that aircraft um, especially um, getting up onto the step and landing and things like that. You just have to be a little bit more mindful of um, controlling the aircraft. And I was I was um, in my element. I just loved it. Uh, you know, this beast of a machine with turbine engines and, and surprisingly no water rudder. You know, I've had water rudders my entire life and now we get to operate this larger machine which has no water rudders. It was purely uh, just by asymmetric thrust that you um, manoeuvre the – and, of course – uh, the air runner. Yeah, the water runner thing's really something you don't think about coming from the float world, isn't it? Like, uh, hold on, every other float plane has them. What about this one? But makes sense when you've got beta and reverse like on the turboprops. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is that not only is it a new machine and uh, it's a floating hull, um, which takes a little bit to get used to, um, there's two seats in it you can either sit on the right or the left there's two engines they're turbine they're extremely powerful so not only do you have a new aircraft uh, that you're trying to to manhandle on the water properly but you've also got two engines now not, i've been flying one all my life on the water now i've got two and there's other things that go with you know twin engines on the water and um yeah it was such a joy to fly uh, and very exciting um, but at the same time you um, you had to be fairly disciplined in what you did and um, like I said you, you can't afford to uh, get lazy as the mallard will very quickly turn around and bite you in the butt. Now you spoke about the the two seats in the cockpit you started off as a first officer like most people do when they come to Pass Bailey 
How did you find that experience as sitting in the right-hand seat now, uh, especially when you're trying to learn uh, a new aircraft type? Um, I loved it. Um, I, I really like sitting in the right uh, as much as the left. Um, for me, the, the turning point, I was really ready to be even the small cog in a big wheel. I just wanted to be part of something, part of a crew. Uh, I didn't have to be the head honcho. I just I wanted to play my part, and that was a perfect role for me, um, being a first officer where, um, and I think you'll agree, it's just as important as um, any other crew member. I mean, you, you've got to work as a team. It's not just gear up, flaps up and shut up. You, you, you're there uh, providing a, a vital role. And I loved it. And, um, of course, we all did our endorsement from the left-hand side, so we all knew what it was like to fly from the left and, and um, you know, be in command of the aircraft. But, you know, doing the the, the – pilot monitoring role if you will um i enjoyed and flying it from that side um interesting enough was a little bit different from flying it manually from the left just the, the views a little bit different and there might be you know a few angles on the on the cockpit that that are not that seem a little bit different and but um yeah i enjoy the experience very much that's cool because uh, with the mallard even though the first officer you know generally in like a, a multi-crew airplane you can generally do both roles from both sides, but there are some things in the mallard that you can't do from the right, for example, the taxiing uh, on the runway because it doesn't have the brakes like the captain does. Uh, but also, there's some pretty cool things that you can do on the right-hand side as well, like the, in the nose hatch and, and also getting out at the back to help with the unloading of the passengers. Yeah, absolutely. And that was one of the, the, the strangest things I've ever done uh, in aviation. Um where you're on the water um, and now you have to uh, catch a mooring and you flip your yoke over uh, to the other side so that it frees up the area. You move the, the rudder pedals out the way as they pivot and then you remove the cargo net and then uh, you actually crawl down into this little space into the, uh, the nose um, area and then you can open up the hatch and come out in the nose of the aircraft in front of the windscreen. And it's it's quite a feeling the first time you do that with these roaring uh, Pratt & Whitney's there and you're just – it's like the, you know, king of the world on front of the Titanic, you know. It was, it was quite good. But you had a job to do and you didn't have much time to, to, to gaze around. You had to get that stick out and get ready to catch that mooring. But the, the whole feeling of doing that was – I've never done anything like that before, going from a cockpit through the cockpit out into the – front of an airplane it was kind of a special moment yeah that's that's one of the one of the i agree it's one of the coolest things i've done with the mallard flying i think is going through that nose hatch getting out and seeing both those turbo props just almost right in front of you there it's uh it's such a unique thing and, and something i actually miss a little bit now that i'm more in the left hand left hand seat now you also jumped into the left hand seat pretty quickly as well tell us about your command upgrade um, yeah, that was something that happened around 12 months after uh, I had started and it, it sort of happened a lot faster than I ever thought it would. It just um, just through the changes in the company at the time and um, they just said that you're ready and uh, let's let's go forward. I, I would have liked to have done another 12 months in the right-hand seat just to get a little bit more experience on the aircraft, but um, nothing like throwing you in the deep end to make you um, yeah, sort yourself out fairly quickly. So. It, um, actually, sitting over in the left was nothing new. Obviously, we'd done the endorsement and we learnt to fly initially the aeroplane on the left-hand side. Um, but 
you know, you're now doing your command upgrade, which means, you know, you're now the commander or the captain, uh, which I, I think really being a captain or what makes a good captain would really sort of be the same for all pilots. I think you would like to have all the same traits as, as the co-pilot or any other pilot, you know, have good situation awareness, be self-confident. Um, I think maybe even having humility is, is pretty important. I think pretty clear communication skills is very, very important, especially as a captain. Um, perhaps the ability to even remain a lot calmer under under pressure. And I think um, a strong desire to learn is, is you never stop learning. So, And those sort of traits you can pass on to the younger generation that might be coming up alongside you. So um, just being um, decisive, make good decisions. And it's good as well that um, Paspaley doesn't, push you into the left-hand seat, you know, in a matter of 10 hours or, you know, whatnot. The, the command upgrade is 100 hours of ICUS training um, with a training captain, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I take my hat off to them. The, the training second to none, it was um, – and I, I'm not sure what your first flight in the, in the Mallard was. I'm, I'm sure they're all much the same as you sort of taken aback a little bit going, wow, this is amazing, the, the, the level of – training sort of comes through straight away when you see well they, they really are on top of everything whether it's a checklist or their procedure uh, nothing's really missed um, con- considering I've been single pilot uh, right up until that point um, just it was quite refreshing to see and and you know we're quite proud of being a part of that even though we're flying a 1947 machine and we're doing airline procedures and um, covering everything and staying as safe as possible we get to do that on land as well as water, and I think that's 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 one of the best parts about being the seaplane pilot. What are the some of the best things you love about this job currently with uh, with flying the Mallard? Um, the flying speaks for itself for us. I mean, for those that have never flown a Mallard or even touched one, um, that are listening might go, "Well, what's that like?" It's uh, a privilege, I think, to be able to operate and work for a company that operates. Um, said aircraft. Um, the company's fantastic to work for, and I think it's safe to say that we're, we're one big family. And uh, you know, even though we're not living in each other's pockets and having dinner with each other every night, we we are a, an extended family. We we all look out for each other, and uh, we're a very close knit uh, group, um, pilots especially. And um, I think I don't think I've ever worked for a, uh, a company that has brought that to the table or had that sort of feeling to that level, should I say. And, um, yeah, the, if you have suggestions and things like that, you put them forward. They're uh, always taken on board. They're never just slammed shut and, and forgotten about. Um, we're always trying to better ourselves. But um, going to work every day and, and flying a machine such as the Mallard, I don't think could ever really be topped um, in the seaplane world, that's for sure, um, apart from maybe, you know, the Albatross or Shin Mayor or something completely different. Um and I guess with those kind of jobs, you've got to throw into account lifestyle as well. And, you know, you've got uh, your daughter here. You've got a house now as a family. Um, so adding that into the mix as well, it sounds like you're pretty happy and stable in this job. Oh, absolutely. And what I liked about it Sunday when I was there was it was like you, you were working in a um, – I've used the word before in a different context, but like a fishbowl, you're always doing the same thing. You know your job inside and out, and that's the beauty about the work that we do in the Mallard. Um, for some people, it may be uh, we just do the same thing all the time, but I love that. I, I really love the pearling work. 
because it's a bit of a safety net at the same time. You, you know exactly what you're doing. You know exactly where you're going. And, um, you know, if things change, they're generally, you know, changing on the go. And it's, um, I don't know, it's a bit of a, a feeling of, of knowing your job back to front. And you just, um, I don't know, you've got that sort of safety net of, of knowing what to expect. And anything that's thrown at you on the day, you, you deal with on the day. It's um, not like a, you know, a 7-4 pilot that flies out of Sydney and is going across the other side of the world and you've got no idea initially what the weather's going to be like exactly when you get there, etc. But we've got a pretty good idea of our day-to-day operation and what the weather's going to be like. I guess that's one thing as well with seaplanes is, yeah, sure, we might go to the same spot regularly, but you throw the seaplane aspect of it into the mix and all of a sudden things are so much different every day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I'm saying like a fishbowl, the umbrella of the operation is generally the same, but day to day, yeah, that it is a very dynamically changing situation and, and that's the beauty about it. That's one of the draw cards of, um, is, of the industry that we're in um, is that you we're very, very lucky is that not only are we seaplane or floatplane orientated is that we're amphibious. We, we get to do both. So not only can we, you know, land on land, we land on water. Well, Drew, it's been awesome talking to you about your career through the seaplane world and, uh, and, and just aviation in general. Uh, I'd like to finish with a little segment called Splash and Dash Questionnaire. It's like a land plane touch and go, except uh, as we call it on the water there, the Splash and Dash. So just some quick questions. The first one I'm going to start off with is what was your or what is your favourite seaplane that you've ever flown? Would have to be the Mallard. Awesome. Um, if you could choose any other seaplane to fly, what would be a dream seaplane to fly? Dream seaplane? I reckon. Um, I think maybe the Albatross or the Shinmaiwa. I think that that would. Those Shinmaiwas look pretty cool, don't they? Like. Yeah, definitely. Just. Yeah, just the whole concept, and uh, yeah, if you've ever seen the Shinmaiwa in action, um, on video or whatever, it looks pretty impressive. So um, yeah, some some interesting technology there. You've flown in so many different areas. Would you rather fly float planes off rivers, uh, lakes, or like an open ocean environment? Uh, I like the open ocean um, bays and caves, should I say? What we do at the moment, um, rivers and and lakes are are great um but i like the idea of um having a little bit more open a little bit more to think about what would be your dream private seaplane to own i think maybe a super cub on floats yeah that'd be fun there's a few extra horses in it um and finally drew um we've heard some great advice uh just just from hearing your story what kind of advice would you give to aspiring seaplane pilots out there who are thinking about giving the seaplane industry a go? Um, I have to be careful when I say this because I'm I'm going to pay it forward. Is that once you go to floats, you'll never go back. I read that statement. I I thought I better check this out, and um, I'm still in floats. I I haven't gone back. Um, so that statement rings true for me. Um, I think. For aspiring seaplane pilots, um, if it's something you're truly interested in, have a go and stick with it. If you're unsure, I say the same. Have a go. It'd be like um, a helicopter, a pilot. You know, I don't know. You go off and do a trial instructional flight. Get a feel for it. See what you think. Um, that's what I did when I when I read the article. I went off and did a trial instructional flight 
just half an hour, and um, I was hooked, and I knew then. So um, I think it's very easy to, to sit at home reading books and procrastinating. Um, you know, I understand there could be financial implications and what have you, but if you can find a way to have a go, because when a, a seaplane's off the water, it flies very similar to much in any other aircraft. It's it's when you're on the water that the magic happens. Yeah, and I hear that a lot actually with guys just have a go. It's it's generally the pilots who who want it the most are the ones who end up being in the float plane industry um, the longest. Yeah, absolutely. I, there, there's been statements in the past. There are those that will and those that won't, and I, that kind of rings true as well. Um, you either will or you won't, but I, I think there is some middle ground of having a go because you won't ever really um, get that spark until you you actually physically have a go on the water and um, get out there and do it. Yeah, pretty much. Well, Drew, it's been uh, great having you on the show, mate. I really enjoyed having a chat with you and hearing your story. So uh, thanks again for joining us and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks very much for having us on the show, Dan. And that's a wrap for episode number two of On The Step with That Mallard Guy. Hope you enjoyed Drew's story just as much as I did, folks. Really great chat. Now, don't forget to leave me a review if you like the podcast and get in touch to be featured for the Seaplane Spotlight for next time. But before we go, here is a taste of a very powerful episode number three. You know, the holes in the Swiss cheese aligned and um, it was controlled flight into terrain. And, um, yeah, uh, just a yeah, significant thing to go through. I had um, quite a few passengers on board and we all walked away. So that was quite an amazing thing to even just to understand that. Until next time, everyone, thanks for coming on The Step. <laughs>